Zechariah chapter 14, completing our study of the prophecies of Zechariah this summer. And as the kids head out and as we open God's word, let's take a moment to pray uh, for them as they hear his word and for us as we prepare to hear God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that as the one who has given your word, you would also carry it the rest of the way from the page into our hearts. May these children who are hearing your word this morning, may their hearts be open to receive it and to respond to it. May their teachers be given wisdom and patience to not only instruct, but to set a good example in word and in deed. And for all of us here, as we hear your word, as it is read and as it is preached, may we receive it as the words of a loving Heavenly Father to His children. May we receive it in humility. May we receive it in joy. May we receive it in faith. And may we respond in obedience. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll be looking at all of Zechariah 14 this morning, but in the interest of time, I'll be reading selections beginning in verse 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light." On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate. And from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And then down to verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Verse 20, and on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of the Lord will not pass away. I'd like to read to you a different word this morning. It may be familiar to some of you, by which I will know your age. He went away, and you hung around, and bothered me every night. And when I wouldn't go out with you, you said things that weren't very nice. My boyfriend's back, and you're going to be in trouble. 
When you see him coming, better cut out on the double. He's been gone for such a long time, but now he's back and things will be fine. You're going to be sorry you were ever born because he's kind of big and he's awful strong. Hey now, hey now, my boyfriend's back. So saying the angels in their, their 19 hit, my boyfriend's back. We love stories and songs like that of somebody coming back and fixing things. That's what appeals to us about songs like My Boyfriend's Back or movies where everything is so wrong for so long, but in the end, someone comes in and fixes it all. And everything that felt so wrong is overturned and made right again. And the bullies are put in their place and McFly triumphs where the bad guys lose and those who suffered so long under their oppression are made right. The broken is fixed. Israel's prophets spoke of that day. They called it the day of the Lord. Zechariah in this chapter refers to it as on that day. On that day. And everybody knew what day he meant. The day Israel's boyfriend came back and her enemies were in trouble. But Zechariah chapter 14, like the book of Revelation or like Matthew 24, can be disturbing because we read some disturbing imagery and some confusing things. They, all three of those cover uh, not only the end times, but also the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century after, after Jesus was resurrected. And the message is that things will get bad, but then things will get awesome. Just because things aren't progressing upward day by day, getting better and better, doesn't mean that God's people are not on the path that will lead to happiness. Sometimes the straightest path to the mountaintop takes you down through a valley before you can ascend again. But for God's people, we have the assurance that He will return and make everything right again. And those promises for the future leak into the present day. They're not just words about a far-off hope that have no bearing on us now. They instead give us hope and give us direction for how to live as we wait for and work for the day of the Lord's return. And Zechariah shows us what will happen on that day. How will the Lord make everything right? The first thing we see is that he is reclaiming his land. When he returns, he is reclaiming his land. Some of the most vivid promises that we have in this chapter have to do with the land. Verses 3 and 4, for example, describe the Lord going out to fight against nations as when he fights on a day of battle, and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives, it should be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall be moved northward and the other half of the mountain will be moved southward. God rips mountains apart when he fights on his return. Reminds me of something you would see in the earth movers of the Avatar cartoons. But it's important because this level of, of destruction shows that God has the power and the authority to control the physical world. It's the same message that we see in Jesus when He calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still! And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
And the disciples were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They asked that question because they knew that only God can control the physical world in that way. And so as we see the, the literal changing of the landscape upon God's return, we are reminded that God does not just rule heaven and the supernatural and the spiritual world. No, the physical world that He created, He still and also controls. He did not just create the world we live in, He controls it. And though the physical world is not the very good place that God created it to be in the beginning. The reason for that is that God gave dominion over creation to us, to His creatures, the pinnacle of His creation, those made in His image. He gave dominion over creation to mankind. And when Adam and Eve rejected God's rule and entered into rebellion against their Maker, everything under their dominion, all the physical world, suffered. Paul describes it this way in Romans 8, For the creation, the physical world, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, i.e. mankind, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The problems that we see and suffer under in the physical world are because they are the result of the rebellion of mankind, and they are a temporary thing that will be fixed. So not only does God have power over the physical world, but when He comes back, He will reclaim that physical world and restore the land to what it was intended to be. Let's see what that looks like in Zechariah's vision. Verse 6 says that on that day, the day the Lord returns, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. The translation here is a little tricky. I think it's best uh, if I just explain what it seems to be saying is a lot like what John in Revelation 21 says. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the eternal kingdom that God is preparing, There is no need for the sun, the moon, the stars, or electric lights. Sorry, FPL, you're out of business in the day of the Lord because God Himself provides eternal light. There will be one eternal day. Look what else happens in verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. In almost every vision of God's new creation, of our eternal home, there is water flowing because water brings life. Look at Revelation 22, the first two verses. The angel showed John the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street to the city. Also on either side of the river, The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, first of all, many of you perhaps grew up with a a description of of eternal life, of heaven, as this spiritual place, what I heard one author describe it as a, a floaty cloud place where we all just kind of float around and live on the clouds. And that is, that's, that's so far from the biblical description of what awaits God's people. It is a very real and tangible 
and beautiful recreation of the world that God made in Genesis 1. But aside from just painting a picture of an earthly paradise, why is this here? Why are we seeing this in Zechariah 14? It's because the brokenness and the sickness of the physical world, natural disasters, disease, famine, unlivable climates, these are things that don't belong in God's world. They are aberrations. They are errors. And when our king returns, he will reclaim his land and transform it, making it to be as it was in the beginning. As described in Genesis 1.31, after creating the physical world, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Every square inch of God's creation was good and pleasing, and it will be again, as we sometimes sing, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. I was reminded of this as I was, uh, years ago we lived in a, a rental property. And um, when there were things that needed to be fixed and spruced up and repaired, when the toilet broke, I was, I was going through old receipts lately, and I was reminded of some of this, seeing some of the receipts from that time. And uh, yeah, the landlord would send somebody to come fix it, and, and they would do a Sometimes a good job, sometimes just a haphazard job. Uh, it just, you know, they, there was a clear lack of care for the property. They were just trying to get the job done. But then one guy came. Our last few months there, a guy came and started doing repairs. And he was so intent on doing everything right. And not just doing it right, but making it better. Making it look better. Making it work better. Making it a much better place. And then we found out why. This was the landlord's son, and this was going to be his house someday. He was going to take over the property. Now it made sense. Why did he want it to be so nice? God is coming into his creation, changing it, transforming it, making it what he wants it to be because it is his creation. He is not a visitor he is not an invader. He is not a stranger in the physical world. God is the loving craftsman who owns it and who will again dwell in this world. He is zealous to reclaim it and He is zealous for you to be a part of that. So enjoy. Enjoy what is good in this creation. The things that point you to God. Mourn for the things in this creation that are broken. That are not the way it should be. That are not the way they will be. Preserve and protect and await His return because when the King comes back, He will reclaim His land. Now, if the creation imagery is the most vivid, I think the most disturbing, describes something else the King will do when He returns, and that is He will reassert His rule. The things that God will do to His enemies on His return, He will reassert His rule. Because what His people needed to know in their struggle and in the days to come, and what you need to know and what you need to be encouraged by is that God will reassert His rule. We see in verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. Again, that last phrase might not be super clear in how it's translated, but what it's saying in short is that Yahweh, the Lord, will be the only God in all the earth. 
understand that in the, the times of Zechariah in the ancient Near East, the belief was, well, you have Yahweh the Lord, and he's, he is limited by the boundaries of Israel. And then we have the other gods who are limited by the boundaries of the nations that serve them. And each god had its own geography. And the message of Scripture through the prophets again and again is, no, Yahweh, our Lord, is king over all the earth. Not just this nation, but all the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the vision of Zechariah is that though the nations do not serve him now, he will reassert his rule and his reign over them. For most of history, people have worshipped falsely other gods. And people have ordered their lives after other truths. People have sought salvation and hope in other things. When speaking to a crowd of people who worshipped other gods, Paul warned them in Acts 17 that the times of these times of ignorance God overlooked. Ignorance in chasing after other gods. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God was always in charge. God has always been king over all the earth, waiting, watching, patiently calling people to turn to him the only true God. The fact that he has overlooked their rebellion and overlooked their failure to worship him is not weakness and not laziness on the part of God. It's not a lack of power. It is a mercy. God is patient with those who don't worship him because he's showing them mercy. In Peter, 2 Peter 3, the apostle reminds us that the reason the Lord has been slow to return is this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with those who do not worship Him because He is merciful. He holds back His wrath and His anger and even punishment, giving a chance for others to repent. But as we see in Zechariah, and as we see throughout Scripture, God will not wait forever. He is patient now and He withholds His judgment for now, but not forever. In Zechariah 14, 17, we see that if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Rain was a symbol of divine blessing, more than a symbol. It was a visible, tangible testimony of divine blessing. Rain made food. No rain no food. In the days of Zechariah, you could know who somebody worshipped by noting who they prayed to or to whom they prayed uh, for rain. Did you pray to Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth? Did you pray to Baal, the god of thunder and lightning? God in his kindness, however, had even given rain to those that did not serve him or call upon him. We see this again in Acts 14. Paul, in preaching to the Romans and Greeks said, In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, to serve whoever you wanted to serve, pray to whomever you want to pray, call on whomever you want to call. Yet He did not leave Himself without a witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
Paul says, look, I know you don't worship the God I'm calling you to worship, but he's been good to you even when you didn't see it by giving you rain and food, answering prayers that you did not send up to him. But that time comes to an end. And Zechariah says there will be a day when people, know, when people who do not worship the true Lord and King will no longer receive his grace and his blessing. In fact, not only will he withhold blessing, God will fight against them in some of the more disturbing verses that we won't look at. It vividly describes how the Lord will fight against the people who do not serve him because they are his enemies. And it's natural to wonder, how is this loving? How does this fit with our view of God as a loving God? For him to fight against people and bring them harm? Well, I would challenge you to consider that it is in fact very loving. It's one of the most loving things that God does. Because God is not indiscriminately loving. God loves the world. He loves all that he has made. But his children, he loves his children in a very special way. He is a sweet, kind, loving God to His children. I've seen some of the gentlest mothers turn into raging monsters when their children are threatened. God is a jealous God. In Zechariah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the beginning of Zechariah's prophecy, we see this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. God's anger at the nations is a product of His jealousy for His people. The image of God as conqueror, as warrior, as one with a drawn sword needs to be seen as a father defending His children. He is not a petty tyrant picking fights and selfishly going to war. He is not a cruel sadist who delights in hurting people. He is a father. A father that will not hesitate to rise up and fight for his children when they are threatened. If he did not do this, he would be no true king and no loving father. So Christian, as for you, how do we react to this? First, notice the patience of God. He waits he shows kindness even to those that reject Him. And learn to imitate that grace as He calls you to. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Imitate the kindness of God, the patience that He shows towards His enemies. But know that His kindness is not lazy indulgence. When the great day of the Lord comes, on that day He will assert His rule. He will show His power as the power of a king. It's not your job to strike down the enemies of God. We imitate His grace, not His vengeance. As Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He will reassert His rule in His time when grace has finished its work. Until then, we imitate the patience of God. We trust His timing for vengeance. But our attitude towards others is one of grace 
and patience. The final imagery in the chapter and of all of Zechariah might be a bit of a letdown. After all this buildup, creation being undone and remade, God's enemies either worshiping him or being punished. And now, and now, what is the pinnacle of Zechariah's prophecy? Verse 20 and 21. There will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots of the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Bells, pots, and boiled meat. Some of you are thinking about pots of boiled meat right now. I'm sorry. But let's dig into that last bit of imagery. Far from being a whimper at the end of this crazy apocalyptic imagery, this imagery at the end of Zechariah is worth our attention and worth our response. Because in addition to reclaiming his land and reasserting his rule, we see here that God is restoring his people. He is restoring his people. The phrase mentioned there in verse 20, holy to the Lord. In the Old Testament, it is only inscribed on one and only one very special item. It is the turban that the high priest wore. Only the high priest, not all the priests. Only the high priest wore a turban, and on that turban was written, Holy to the Lord. And he would wear that turban as he went into the holiest of holy places to offer sacrifice for the people. The bowls mentioned here, the bowls before the altar were uniquely special because they held the blood of the sacrifice. Those bowls could not be used for any other thing. And nothing else was allowed to do what those special and holy bowls did. The meat of the sacrifice was not common, ordinary food that anybody could access. It was especially for the priests at the time of the sacrifice. No one else could touch it. God had set up a system in Israel to show what holiness means. When we say something is holy, we mean it it is set apart. It has a special purpose for God's use, a special purpose for God to use. And so it should be treated with very special respect and care. It can't be handled just like anything else. Like in my house growing up, my sisters and I knew on Sunday, didn't matter what we were eating, leftovers, spaghetti and meatballs, McDonald's. It didn't matter what we were eating on Sunday, we used the Sunday china. We had a china cabinet in the house with my parents' wedding china. A ring of gold around each plate. You didn't put those in the dishwasher. You didn't stack those up real high in the sink. You didn't throw them about carelessly as you set the table. Two hands. I will never forget. Two hands. Two hands, Rob. Two hands. You take two hands, one plate. You carry it to the table. And you set it down. And you go back. And thank God we only had five people in the family. I had to be there all morning. It was set apart for a special purpose, and you had to treat it with special respect and care. And that's what the Lord was teaching His people with these holy institutions in the Old Testament. So look again at what Zechariah is telling us. Holy to the Lord, that special 
phrase, on that specialist of items, won't anymore just be for the high priest. Even the bells on the horses, the most, one of the most common things is going to have holy to the Lord written on it. Normal cooking pots that you have in your kitchen are going to be like the bowls before the altar that catch this and hold the sacrificial blood. Every single person will be able to take the meat of the sacrifice and boil it and eat it. At first, it sounds like God is saying that nothing will be special anymore. There's no more holiness. Nothing is set apart to be used by God. But it's really just the opposite. The rules of sacrifice and holiness and priests and special bowls were meant to be temporary, to teach God's people that serving God and being used by Him was a special thing. But in reality, they were never meant to last. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author tells us that all of these things were just a shadow, a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Really, the reality from the beginning was that all God's people were meant to be holy. In Exodus 19, when he first made a covenant with them and gave them the Ten Commandments, he said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession from among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The whole entire nation of God's people were meant to be set apart for special service. And so what Zechariah is saying is not that holiness is lost and nothing is holy anymore. He's rather saying that holiness is expanded and all of God's people have special purpose for him. It's like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. That moment when she's taken over the rainbow and, and she's walking through her house and everything is still black and white. And that moment she opens the door and suddenly the world springs to life in full color. That's what Zechariah is describing here. The world has gone from holy moments here and there to holiness everywhere. God using a few special people and items to God using all of us. Holiness, purpose, service to God had been uniquely seen in a few people and few places and few things. The priest, the altar, the temple, little spots of color in a black and white world. And Zechariah is describing the scene over the rainbow when the whole world is filled with color, when there's no distinction between holy and common because everything and everyone is holy to the Lord. That is what you and I were made for. We lost that. Holiness, the purpose we find in serving God, we lost that when we started living for ourselves. And when we lost that we lost our joy. Zechariah speaks of the day when God restores His people, restoring them to what they were made for, restoring them to their joy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I've often mentioned, begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? What were you born for? What is the meaning of life? It is this, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Glorify God to fulfill the special purpose you were made for. That's what brings you joy. God created us to find joy in serving Him. Not to find it as a joy or a drudgery or an unfortunate duty or an annoying add-on to our busy lives. It's your purpose. 
Your life is not divided into a spiritual side and a non-spiritual side. When you're church or when you're praying or when you're listening to Christian radio, like that's when you're in your spiritual side. And then all the other times when you're at work, when you're studying, when you're playing Minecraft, you're out on your boat, you're watching TV, that's the not spiritual side of your life. And that is a falsehood. That does not exist. You are not divided in that way and the world is not divided in that way. All your life, everything you do is meant to be a service to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Likewise, in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like for every moment to be done to give glory to God? It means a lot more than we have time to get into this morning. But at the very least, it means that everything we do we receive with thanks and we consider the presence and the purpose of God as we do it. Pray that God would open your eyes to see that whatever you do, whatever you speak, however you spend your time, God has given it to you and God has a reason for giving it to you. And God can and should be honored in it. Not just the special, spiritual, churchy times of your life, But every moment is filled with the presence of God and the purpose of God. That's His vision for you. That's His promise to you. That's what you were made for. And that's what will ultimately bring you true and lasting joy. And that's what Jesus Christ makes happen when He sends His Spirit to dwell in you and to direct you. Warnings like these in Zechariah 14, if we just read straight through, can come off as scary and offensive to some people and judgy. But do not miss this, that every warning in Scripture is an undeserved mercy from God. He does not need to warn us. He does so because His heart is not to destroy. The warnings of God are callings of grace The king will return. He will reclaim his land. He will reassert his rule. He will restore his people. But there's still time to follow him. If you are one of his people, hear those warnings with joy and be encouraged. What you've long awaited is coming true. And it is even now being fulfilled. If you stand outside the people of God, hear the warning and take the opportunity to respond. The death of Jesus is a gift of God, an act of grace that you don't deserve. It forgives your sins and reconciles you to the king so that when when the day that Zechariah speaks of here comes to pass, you will welcome the king who comes to set things right. You will rejoice at his coming because he alone has the power to rescue and to save. You will lift up your eyes to the giver of life. Let us pray and thank him that He will return and set all things right. Our gracious Father, we thank You for these promises that are more than we deserve. You have not only told us how the story ends, but You've done so in a way that encourages us and shows us how to live until that day. Strengthen us according to these promises, we pray. We pray these things according to the will of Jesus Christ, 
whose spirit indwells us and leads us in our response. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.